Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This week, our theme is devotion. And over the course of the next hour, we'll bring you all sorts of stories about dedication and commitment. Like the woman who sacrificed her job for love. She's worth me telling the truth about who she is to me, who she is in my life. And the local family whose life was turned upside down by a devastating accident. You're still the same person that you were before. I'm still the same person I was before. But we'll start today's show. So you can hear just the air exchange rush. With a devotion. Some residual biosafety gear from the early part of the project. That's lasted for decades. When you're working with an infectious agent that's biosafety level two and three, you'll do it in this kind of a biosafety cabinet where you just open it up and there's an airflow from top to bottom coming in here. So it's a protection against air coming out of the hood toward you. But the agent Alan Smalljohn's been working with here at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore isn't level two or three. No. Ebola virus is biosafety level four. And the microbiology and immunology professor has been developing a vaccine for the virus that's killed roughly 4,500 people in West Africa. Many of our classical vaccines are weakened version of exactly the same virus, like the measles, the mumps, rubella vaccine. My vaccine and all the new vaccines are different from that classic model. The vaccine Smalljohn was developing isolates specific parts of the Ebola virus to find out what makes it function. I say was developing because even though we're standing in a lab full of centrifuges and water baths and microscopes and freezers, nothing's being used right now. Right now we're mothballed and in an interim phase. We were active in production of one of the several vaccines that has been tested and shown to be effective in protecting non-human primates against Ebola virus. And we were working as a subcontractor for a biotech company across the street and in turn funded by the uh, acquisition branch of the U.S. Army. And they took it to a certain phase and then decided to pause. Initially, he says they paused because of the sequester in 2013. Like a three-month sequester costs you nearly a year's work. And then you're behind schedule. (laughs) But eventually, he and his team were told they had three months to wrap things up. When we asked the Department of Defense why, they issued a statement saying, quote, the contract had measurable goals and milestones to indicate progress toward a successful countermeasure. Those measurements did not sufficiently demonstrate a path to success. Alan Smalljohn says he isn't bitter, just bemused. I've been around... Uh, I worked 21 years for government. I've been in academe. I've worked in the healthcare industry. I started out as a medical technologist. And that's the nature of DOD contracting. And these are all congressional mandates. This is not even DOD's fault. So just to clarify, all of the research you've done, all of the batches you have, where is it? Well, what, what has been made under contract has been transferred to Department of Defense, and it is uh, being tested. It's not available for human use except in a more catastrophic emergency than we face right now because there are these other vaccines also on the horizon a little closer. So it will be used in part to understand some of the scientific questions of what those vaccine improvements will be. So it's not all for naught. Oh, it's not all for naught. We always learn something in this process, and Thinking of vaccinology, I would say that it's not rocket science. It's a lot harder than rocket science. Rocket science involves classical Newtonian physics and math, material science, chemistry, 
and that can all be calculated and predicted to a very fine level. Once you're in a biological system, things achieve not just complicatedness, but a complexity and interaction of systems that is much more difficult than rocket science. So the things we learn along the way are are not wasted. You just kind of smile and then try to step forward and do the next best thing that you can do. And for you, what is that? Part of what I'm doing now is I've been asked to help communicate the many things that I know about Ebola viruses and to help communicate that to the public in a way that can reassure them of what's true, not to deceive them with some false sense of security, but there is an alarm rising right now. And this fear is not unreasonable, but it's also non-rational. That is, it's understandable why people would be afraid, because part of what people are seeing is the turning of one of their fictional nightmares of a virus going out of control and rampaging the world. It looks like it's turning real. But it's really not. Uh, It's serious and it's important, and the outbreak has to be extinguished in Africa in all our interests. But it's nothing like that. It's not a severe risk to the U.S. uh, population. Is it true that Ebola is harder to catch than the common cold? Oh, yeah, by far. Some of the contagion would be in the same way. You often catch a common cold not by breathing next to each other, but by exchanging contact fluids from tissues, from handkerchiefs, from kisses of affection or greeting, and you can get Ebola that way as well. But otherwise, the common cold can also be uh, more contagious for a longer period of time in air droplets. Uh, So it's more possible to catch the common cold by coughing and sneezing. So Ebola, the key to spreading it, are large droplets. Yeah, it's large droplets, which we kind of categorize in that category of close contact. So if you're close enough to get large droplets from a cough or a procedure or something like that, you're almost also certainly in contact with blood, vomit, with diarrhea. And the highest concentration of the virus appears to be in blood itself. And these other body fluids are basically spillover from the blood. So they do contain virus as well. So the community has a lot of knowledge about Ebola. There are known unknowns, to use the Rumsfeld term, but none of those deeply affect the way we manage this small outbreak in the U.S. and then the large epidemic in West Africa. Alan Smalljohn is a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. You can hear him discussing precautions for protection against Ebola on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story actually takes us out of the United States to the island nation of Haiti, It's the story of a Haitian system known as Restavec, in which parents who can't afford to care for their children send them to live with another family. The United Nations has condemned Restavec as a modern form of slavery, and by some estimates, up to 300,000 children in Haiti find themselves in this system. As Matthew Schwartz tells us, this summer, a D.C. nonprofit set out to give voice to some of these children. Imagine a world where children are sent to live with strangers, kept out of school, and sometimes abused. In Haiti, this scenario is not unthinkable. 
these children are promised an opportunity to go to school and then are not afforded that opportunity and instead are forced to be domestic servants. They are child laborers. That's Kathy Crutcher, founder of a DC publishing house for Unheard Voices. They are not counted as part of the family in any way. They are often forced to do all of the cooking and cleaning but may not be fed. They are not taken care of in any way and certainly not afforded any kind of affection or love. There's a sense, she says, that no one is looking out for them. And that no one cares and that their story doesn't matter, their life doesn't matter. That's where Shoutmouse comes in? That's where Shoutmouse comes in. Our mission is to make unheard voices heard. So our logo image is a mouse with a megaphone, right? So quiet as a mouse, but we can amplify that voice. That's the idea, Shout Mouse. This summer, Shout Mouse partnered with the Restavec Freedom Foundation, which works to end child slavery in Haiti. Kathy visited a transitional home for girls who grew up in Restavec. With Kathy's guidance... Fifteen girls broke into teams and collaboratively wrote two books over the course of a week. They are writing a fictional story, but it is based off of their own experiences, of their own lives. We gave Kathy a recorder so she could interview some of the girls about their experiences. My name is Rosmiata Innocent. And how old are you? I have 15 years old. What should people know about you? Uh, mm, people should know about me like, uh, I'm a pretty girl and I want to be the president of Haiti. Why do you want to be president of Haiti? I want to be the president of Haiti because I want to change my country. The children in Haiti, they have some of them that they abuse and they beat them and they don't have a good life and I want many children of Haiti feel good, have our parents and go to school. My name is Katselska. I have 17 years old. I would like to be a psychologist and I would like to be the vice president of Haiti. Oh, I love that. Why <laughs> vice president? I want to be uh, vice president of Haiti because Rosmirta uh, wants to be the president of Haiti <laughs> and she needs me to help her and I want to help my country. I want to help the people in my country. It's very bad uh, the way they treat the children. I would like to change it. As we've heard, the books draw on the girls' own experiences and Rosmirta loves to sing. I always been of color girls that hit my face. So afraid to tell the world what I have to say. The girls came up with two books, both of which will be available next month. In one story, Jenica sings for freedom. Jenica's talent for singing helps her to escape the life she's in. In the other story, Stand Up for Soraya, a girl in Restavec dreams of the life she once knew. She meets another girl who is confronting the injustice with open eyes for the first time. Here's Rosmirta reading from Stand Up for Soraya. Sonia looked the stepmother in the eyes. Children are the future of this country, she said. They must all go to school. Every child should have the same rights as every other child. The books are bilingual, printed in English and Creole. 
Schoutmaus is working to distribute the books throughout Haitian schools and churches and is hoping to find American partners to share them as widely as possible. The system is having is a bad, bad, bad situation. That's why uh, we write this book. It's so important to me because I am a, I am a child also. God is a king and the kingdoms are for children. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Time for a break, but when we get back, the price one woman paid for devotion to her wife. Just basically everything I have worked for was wiped out overnight. Stay with us here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're sharing tales of devotion, and the family we'll hear from next knows all about staying devoted after tragedy strikes. Last year, on the 6th of July, Rockville resident Mike Lebrun was cycling, as he often did, when he hit a pothole. His back hit the concrete at a 90-degree angle, and he suffered massive internal injuries. Mike survived, but he was paralyzed from the chest down. Mike's daughter, Kate, is 14 years old and attends Walter Johnson High School in Montgomery County. She sat down with her father to get answers to questions she's never asked about the accident and how their lives changed. On the day of your accident, I was having my big first swim meet, and you were biking to meet us there, and then the accident happened. For a long time, I blamed myself because I thought it was my fault you were out that day. Who do you blame I don't blame anybody, Kate. I woke up that Saturday morning after having ridden to and from work on Friday, and I had that post-exercise stiffness in my legs, and I wanted to work that out. So that's why I decided to ride my bike that day. And the rest, as they say, is history. I hit the pothole, and now I am what I am. I've always loved playing soccer with you in the backyard and you helping me out with my technique. We really don't get to do that much anymore, and it's really hard sometimes. What do you really miss doing that we could do before? Exactly what you just said. I miss being able to go out in the backyard or go to the park and, and play soccer with you and, and with your brother and sister and being able to you know, not just critique your technique, but, but be able to show it and be able to play with you guys. But what I love is all the things we can still do. That's just too awesome. I remember right after your accident going to the hospital to see you. There were some times that I was really scared. Really, really scared. Did you ever think you wouldn't come home? There were times when I was, especially right away, when I wasn't sure what the outcome of this was going to be. You know, I knew I was really, really hurt, and, and, and I was scared, Kate. I was really scared. But once the surgery was done and I was, had recovered enough to know what was going on, I was pretty confident that everything was going to be okay. 
And then there was the night when you and your brother and sister came to the hospital after coming back from camp, and you found me in the emergency room just having had a chest tube put in. And, and I didn't know it at the time. I am covered in blood. The sheets are covered in blood. It's just a great big bloody mess. And you did not freak out. You didn't even let on even the slightest sign that it was some kind of Halloween horror story. And that made me incredibly proud of you for that. When we went to Japan over spring break, I noticed there were a lot of people, especially children, who were staring at you, and that happens a lot here, too. I know you like like being kind of an advocate for, you know, your whole situation, but does it ever, like, really bother you that people stare? Being the center of attention is not normally my thing. And you're right, when we were in Japan, it was, I can't remember the little boy's name, but he was so upfront and candid and asked, why are you on wheels? And why don't your legs work? And I realized people were curious. They want to know what it's like. And, and so I see part of, part of my responsibility now is to be an advocate for the disabled. In a lot of ways, just by living my life the way that I want to uh, and showing how much you can do. Because one moment I was perfectly able-bodied and the next moment I wasn't. I think I can be example to people about how you can live with a disability. While it changes your life, it doesn't diminish your life. And that's become very important to me. What do you think our life would be like if you hadn't gotten hurt? I think it would have been much like it is now. I mean, the, the, the limitations that I, I face because of my disability, they haven't changed the story arc of our lives that much. You're still the same person that you were before. I'm still the same person I was before. So we've had to, to change the way we do things. You have to help me more, so you've had to grow up a little bit faster. I hope you've learned that things in life can change very, very quickly and that, that even major changes like this don't stop everything. Thank you for talking to me and answering all my questions. That was really nice. It was easy, Kate. I'm more than happy to do it. I love you very much. Love you too, Daddy. This story was produced by WAMU's special correspondent, Kavitha Cardoza. next story is about a woman who, a year ago, decided to step down from her role at a church where she had pastored for years. The reason? Her devotion to her new wife. John Hines brings us the story of Baptist Bishop Allison Nelson Abrams. Be open to the fact that God believes in you. Be open to the fact that God understands you. It's just after one o'clock on a recent Sunday afternoon in Silver Spring. And Bishop Allison Nelson Abrams, pastor and founder of the Empowerment Liberation Cathedral Church, is preaching God's Word, as she has done for many years. But Bishop Abrams is new to Silver Spring. Before founding her new church earlier this year, Bishop Abrams had pastored for many years at the Zion Progress Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. It was at that time that I was, I would say, the only uh, female pastor in the church's almost 60-year history that they've had at that Baptist church in Detroit. I was the youngest female called to be the senior pastor of a 
black African-American, or I should say African-American Baptist church. The Detroit area was home. She had roots there. Then she chose to remarry to a woman named Diana Williams, also an ordained minister. Last October, Bishop Abrams spoke with her church board about this. And um, they said that since my duties and my commitment to the church had not changed, even though I had been married for months, um, that, you know, they didn't have a problem with that. However, I would need to tell the church, and I told them we would do that. Bishop Abrams also spoke with a local African-American newspaper. And so when I did that, that story went viral and went across the world about this black Baptist bishop who married a woman. Though she could have continued pastoring at her Detroit church, Bishop Abrams did not feel comfortable remaining there and becoming a source of controversy in the church to which she had devoted so much of her career. She was also devoted to her new wife. So she chose to give up the career she had built at her Detroit parish. I pretty much lost everything uh, that I had worked for for many years, lost the positions that I had gained, uh, lost preaching experiences, lost opportunities to write. I used to write for different commentaries, and just basically everything I had worked for was wiped out overnight. Bishop Abrams does not regret her choice because she knew she was devoted to living a transparent and truthful life together with her spouse. She's worth me telling the truth about who she is to me, who she is in my life, what she means to me, and um, who we are to one another. The two women decided to relocate to the D.C. area because Bishop Abrams had previously lived here. Her wife, Diana, had also lived in the area, and the two women wanted to be in a place where same-sex marriage was legal. But the transition wasn't without some pain. Sometimes, telling the truth, people don't like your truth. In that sense, it can be painful because you're so committed that you're not willing to tell a lie or live a lie. I was devoted to the truth. Bishop Abrams founded the Empowerment Liberation Cathedral with her wife, Bishop Diana Williams, about six months ago. Their mission is to invite all people to worship, not just LGBTQ parishioners. Their church has attracted about 100 members in that time, although at a recent Sunday service, about 30 parishioners were in attendance. Parishioner Catherine Page from Silver Spring was looking for an affirming church and thinks she found it here. We go to church, and as Christians, we want to believe that God loves us all regardless of what. And sometimes we are shunned, sometimes we are not accepted. So being me, being a a lesbian, gay, LGBTQ, I wanted to come see what it was all about. I wanted her to let me know what I was feeling all the years, that God still loves me in spite of what other people say. So Bishop Abrams is starting over in Silver Spring. In spite of huge difficulties, she believes God has led her here to do his work in this time and place. I I just know that I had a gift. I had something to offer people. People, some people needed what I had to offer. And so if God gives a vision, God will send the provision to make sure that that vision come to pass. So I know that this is the time, this is the place in which God ordained for me to do this. Bishop Abrams' church is still in its infancy, barely six months old. If the church grows and prospers, it may well be due to the singular, enduring devotion of its founder. I'm John Hines. 
And now, another tale of personal devotion. We first introduced Robert Baer back in May when he told Emily Berman about his dedication to sharing his perspective on one of the darkest moments of the 20th century. We're pleased to bring you that story again today. Once a month, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum holds a meeting for a select group of volunteers, the survivors. They gather in one of the museum's conference rooms, chatting over lunch and listening to announcements. Among them is Robert Baer, who shows up every single Friday to volunteer. He gets a ride from his home in Gaithersburg all the way down to the National Mall and hops out at the museum. From the very beginning, I was committed to share my story for those who are interested, and that hasn't changed at all. Eighty years ago, when Baer was 12 years old, he and his parents were evicted from their apartment. We received a letter. I think it was November of 1938. And these guys had the nerve to write that the Aryan renters in this apartment building can no longer accept the fact that they have to live with a Jew under the same roof. His family spent the next four years hiding in an elderly woman's home. In 1942, they were arrested and sent to Theresienstadt, a labor camp. Baer was assigned to transport bodies of fellow Jews for burial. He was working in the camp kitchen when it was liberated three years later. It was when he immigrated to the United States a few years later that he first began talking about what he experienced. I uh, taught at the uh, University of Dayton, Ohio, and they had a speaker's bureau. And since I'm a fairly decent speaker, I volunteered and they assigned me to various groups to speak about the Holocaust and World War II. Decades later, he continues to tailor his story for every audience to make sure they get something out of it. You need to be very careful that whatever you say is meaningful. If it isn't meaningful, then you're wasting your time. They need to go home and saying, boy, I really learned something. Most of the kids I'm talking to, the younger ones, they're always very polite, I must say that. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that they absorbed uh, the, the enormity of the, of the Holocaust where six million people got killed for no other reason that they were the wrong religion and didn't choose their parents very well. Diane Saltzman is the director of the Survivor Affairs Program at the museum and works with a group of 90 survivor volunteers. She says eyewitness testimony, like Bears, is fundamental to the museum experience. It cements something about their visit to the museum that almost nothing else can. We know that, that right now we are the last people who will be able to have personal one-on-one encounters with Holocaust survivors. Robert Baer travels around the country on behalf of the museum to speak about the Holocaust. He's told his story hundreds of times. We won't be around forever. Most of us are in the 80s and 90s, and unless we can install the dedication in the younger people who can carry our message after we are gone, then we'll be lost. 
So when a 16-year-old high schooler sent him an email just the other day... She got my name, and she wants to know if she can interview me. The girl's assignment was a quick turnaround, but Bear said, okay. I told her I'd talk to her on the telephone, and then I'll answer as many questions as I can. It's one more chance, he says, to share what happened to him, so that we never let it happen again. I'm Emily Berman. In a minute, resurrecting a long-forgotten piece of sacred music. And I thought, oh my God, we need to sing this. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're all about devotion to family, to work, and in the case of this next story, to theater. 65 years of theater right here in the D.C. region. And earlier this week, Hi. I spoke with the 90-year-old longtime Washingtonian who began it all. Zelda, it's Rebecca Shear calling. Hi, Rebecca. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you, Zelda? I'm okay. I'm sniffling, but that's okay because I'm drinking some hot tea as we speak. In 1950, Zelda Fitchandler helped found what would become the first regional theater to send a show to Broadway, the first to tour the Soviet Union, and the first theater outside New York to win a Tony Award, Arena Stage. Is that hard for you to believe that it was 65 years ago that you started this? Um, No. My life feels very, very long because each play is a universe and each play is an experience. And I did 400 of them at Arena. 400? 400. Zelda spent 40 years as Arena's artistic director. And from the start, her goal was simple, to bring sophisticated professional theater outside of that 10-block confine on Broadway. Why should it be only in one city, this vast nation? Why can't it be in our communities? At the time, Washington, D.C. had Ford's Theater, but it hadn't done any plays since President Lincoln's assassination. The National Theater opened in 1835, but it stopped presenting live theater after picketers clamored for it to desegregate. My husband and I, Tom and I, were on the picket lines before we started the theater. And when we opened it, we never said anything about open to all. We just assumed it. That was a big deal, actually. And it was another of Arena's firsts. In this case, the first theater in Washington to play for a racially mixed audience. Zelda, along with Tom and her former college professor, Ed Mangum, set up shop in the Hippodrome, an abandoned burlesque and movie house at 9th Street and New York Avenue Northwest. After plenty of blood, sweat, and fundraising... We had $15,000, which were raised from friends. Tom and I put in our last thousand, our only thousand. They created a 247-seat theater in the round, a configuration Zelda loves. Everywhere the actor turns becomes a front. It even takes life in a very deep way. The new arena stage opened on August 16, 1950, with Oliver Goldsmith's restoration comedy, She Stoops to Conquer. Cast member Dorothea Hammond had just moved from New York with her husband and was thrilled to find a professional theater in her new town. I went down to meet her in the theater. It was very disheveled. They were just pulling up seats and everything. And I've had this feeling about this woman. The minute I met her, 
you could see that she had this vision. Irina did an astonishing 17 plays that first season, 55 in the first five years. They actually closed for a spell in 1955. The Hippodrome's house was so small they couldn't make ends meet. So in 1957, they opened a larger 500-seat theater in Foggy Bottom, in the hospitality hall of the old Christian Heyrich Brewery, hence its eventual nickname, The Old that. Like the old Vic. (laughs) After a few years, Arena made its next move to southwest Washington. The 827-seat in-the-round Arena stage, later renamed the Fitchandler, opened in 1961. A second space, the fan-shaped 514-seat Krieger Theater, came along in 1971. And in 1972, actor Terrence Currier made his Arena debut. I came to Arena for one show and ended up spending 24 years there as a resident actor. Yay! (laughs) Indeed, thanks to major support from the Ford Foundation. For decades, the theater had a resident acting company, giving nearly two dozen performers a salary, benefits, and near-constant work. We would start rehearsing in August, say, and open a play at the end of August or the 1st of September, and uh, three days after opening, we'd be back rehearsing for the next production. And this was all season long. The acting company turned over a few times before finally dissolving in the 1990s. It hit its first big snag in 1967, when Arena achieved another first. The first theater, as you said, to have a production that transferred to Broadway, but that was not a pretty picture. Arena's current artistic director, Molly Smith, is talking about Howard Sackler's play, The Great White Hope, starring James Earl Jones and Jane Alexander. The company was actually taken into New York. That essentially broke apart the company, so Zelda had to rebuild the company, and Arena Stage received no remuneration for it. So after that time, Tom Fitchhandler made sure that theaters that had productions that moved into New York would receive something financially. The Great White Hope wound up winning the 1969 Tony Award for Best Play. In 1976, Arena Stage nabbed the Tony for Best Regional Theater. I think that puts an exclamation point on Zelda Fitchhandler's pioneering spirit and what she has wrought. We're all the children of Zelda in one form or another. Zelda stepped down as artistic director in 1991. Her former assistant, Doug Wager, took the reins. When Molly Smith succeeded him in 1998, she changed the theater's focus from international plays and classics to all-American work. This city, it's a crossroads for all things great and American. It's a perfect place to really delve into the ongoing questions and complications and experiment that America is. So it's fitting that 2010 brought the debut of Arena Stage at the Mead Center for American Theater. The enormous glass-enclosed complex contains the renovated Fitchandler and Krieger, along with the Kogod Cradle, a 200-seat space built for new and developing works. When the Mead Center opened, Zelda Fitchandler called it art wrapped around art. And for her, theater is a primary art. Not the primary art, a primary art. And its subject is us. Who we are as people, what we do as people, and as we sit in the auditorium and become one with the actors in the play, we have an exchange of mind and heart. I'm enraptured with what the theater can do more than ever. More than ever. And it's no wonder. In her 90 years, she's seen the American theater stretch far beyond the lights of Broadway. Now, it's 1,500 theaters strong. In the D.C. region alone, we have more than 80. 
all of them, to borrow Molly Smith's words, children of Zelda. Arena Stage's 65th anniversary season continues with Fiddler on the Roof, October 31st through January 4th in the Fachandler Stage. For more information and to see photos of Arena in years past, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story in today's devotion show takes us across the ocean to the Republic of Georgia. That's where a certain composer arranged a sacred liturgy to honor his country's musical heritage. And for over a century, the work was gone, vanished, until a choir from here in D.C. discovered it. Elizabeth Weinstein has the story. Washington, D.C. is widely regarded as the choral capital of the nation. With more than 70 choirs vying for audiences, the key to filling seats can be finding a niche. For the Capitol Hill Chorale, a community chorus that includes, in the interest of full disclosure, yours truly, that niche is orthodox music from places like Russia, the Balkans, and countries of the former Soviet bloc. So back in 2009, when chorale member Thea Austin went looking for a Georgian piece for her conductor, Fred Binkholder, she called up Musica Rusica, the largest publisher of Russian choral music in the U.S. And I said, do you know if there is a St. John liturgy that was set by a Georgian composer? And he said, as a matter of fact, there is a recording that's just been re-released. It was recorded. It's been on, put on CD. It's a Russian recording. So it was in Church Slavonic. But he said, it's a beautiful recording and um, I'll send it to you. So he sent me the CD that was absolutely, it floored me. It was so beautiful. And I thought, oh my God, we need to sing this. I, Fred needs to hear this. It's just, it's, it's so beautiful. So um, I called him up and I said, is there a score? Because I know Fred likes to see scores. But it turned out that this piece, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, arranged by Zakaria Paliashvili, was not only not in circulation, there was no record of it ever having been performed in the Georgian language after its debut in 1909. Luckily, Vladimir Morrison, the head of Musica Rusica, had salvaged a single copy of Paliashvili's score back in 1979 when he visited Moscow's Lenin Library. You would bring in a stack of books or a stack of scores, uh, hand it to the little babushka that was sitting there uh, at the desk, and you had your uh, little requisition, and uh, you'd come back the next day, and they must have worked all night, uh, and you would be uh, handed uh, either photocopies or microfilms of your request. With a copy of a copy of Morrison's microfilm in hand, the Capitol Hill Chorale's members began to prepare the score for performance. But a huge question lingered while they worked. Why was this rich arrangement by Georgia's most famous composer, a man whose face is on the currency and who has an opera house bearing his name in Tbilisi, relegated to the musical dustbin? Morrison says, blame the Bolsheviks. Georgia had a, had a brief 
a year or two as an independent nation, and then it was all uh, wrapped into the Soviet Union. Even though Padishvili went on to become a, a very prominent uh, musician, even under the Soviets, then he, he wasn't able to perform any of his sacred music. But it wasn't just political ideology that squashed this masterwork. As the chorale's Russian scholars dug into Palayashvili's history, they found out that his score was an attempt to kill two birds with one stone. First, Palayashvili wanted to preserve the dying art of Georgian chant. On the title page of the of the work, Georgian in Georgian, the word Georgian appears in its twice as large as any other letters in, on the title page. So it's clearly the intent. That's Parker Jane, the chorale's founder. He transliterated Palayashvili's score into English letters so the choir's 90 singers could pronounce the Georgian. And he also wrote a foreword uh, to the work, and he makes clear that, that it's to preserve, it's part of the preservation of Georgian chant, which had been falling, falling into disuse at the end of the 19th century because of Russification. But saving the sacred music he'd grown up with wasn't Palayashvili's only goal. He also wanted to please the Russians, who had influenced him greatly as a student composer in Moscow. He was there from 1900 to 1903, which is right at the beginning of the heyday of the new Russian choral school. An incredible outpouring of Russian liturgical music, which was based heavily on chant, many of the pieces based heavily on chant, and he was in the middle of all of that. But in the end, Palayashvili's score pleased no one, says chorale director Fred Binkholder. It's too Georgian for the Russians and too Russian for the Georgians. And so there was that, that feeling that this didn't fit here and it didn't fit here. It's beautiful, but it didn't have the audience appeal that it does actually now. Today, a century after it was published, the Capitol Hill Chorale is giving new life to Palayashvili's lost liturgy and to the composer himself in an album recorded at Capitol Hill's St. Joseph Catholic Church. There are pieces in music history that are performed once and then you never hear of them again. And that's usually with very, very good reason. There are other things that just through really bad luck didn't get that extra bump, didn't get someone to champion it. Maybe it's taken a hundred years, maybe it's taken some time, but this work needs to be championed. I'm Elizabeth Weinstein. You can see a photo of the composer and his score, as well as a video of the Capitol Hill Chorale rehearsing on our website, metroconnection.org. stay on Capitol Hill for our final story today. We first aired it a few months ago, an insider's look at a rather steamy collection at the Library of Congress, care of Lauren Ober. It is the answer to every voyeur's secret dream, this quiet corridor behind the locked wire mesh door known as the cage, where three large file cabinets are crammed full of such tantalizing titles as Hot Girls, 
cleavage, and black nylons. It is the Delta Collection, and it is available upon request to any member of the public who has the nerve to walk into the Library of Congress and ask for it. (gasps) The Library of Congress? I don't know the existence of either that cage or the file cabinet, so I'm not quite sure what may have happened to those materials. That's Mark Demunation, the chief of the Rare Book and Special Collections Division at the Library of Congress. And those two passages at the beginning of the story... They're from a 1973 newspaper article titled, Library of Congress Has Everything, Even Pornography. The Delta Collection referenced in the story was the library's compilation of books, magazines, photos, and other materials that were thought to be too titillating for the public eye. Years ago, segregating supposedly saucy materials was common. Many universities, public libraries, even European institutions have similar collections – the National Library of France's erotica section, called L'Enfer, or Hell, was kept out of public view until just a few years ago. It's either the Law Cabinet or Cabinet X or the Delta Collection. Whatever it is, they were gatherings of materials that were thought to be a little too provocative to be on the general stacks, especially if you had open stacks. Today, there is no quiet corridor, no file cabinets, no cage. The materials that made up the collection were long ago dispersed into the library's general holdings as Americans became less prudish. The very fact that they were separated tells us a lot about the mores of a bygone era. What was left when everything was dispersed then is this sort of interesting slice of attitudes towards sexuality at a certain period of time, almost like a time capsule. And that's what's come to rare books. There's not a lot of really hardcore kinds of materials here. It's, it's, it's much more innocent. The library still maintains bound versions of spicy periodicals like Playboy, Penthouse, and the vaguely gay After Dark. There are also bodice-ripping romance novels, adult joke books, and other texts so benign that one would look askance at them today. On a recent weekday, Mark Demunation wheels a small cart into the Lessing J. Rosenwald reading room, on the card are nine books of various size and vintage. They were part of the Delta Collection and until the mid-1960s had been kept under lock and key. Demunation pulls a book from the cart. This is the first full public publication on birth control and its use and misuse by Dorothy Dunbar Bromley, right after the Sanger report. That's Margaret Sanger, the early birth control advocate. Um, and was immediately put into the Delta Collection because it dealt with Women's sexuality, which I will say tends to be much more guarded by the Delta Collection than, say, the behavior of males. And so it was probably seen as period to be able to read about various approaches to birth control. And so the entire work was set aside. Other authors whose works got stashed in the Delta Collection include Simone de Beauvoir, Havelock Ellis, and Alfred Kinsey, the biologist best known for his hot little reports on human sexual behavior. One imagines that it's it's the much more illicit material that would be set aside. But you can see that in the 50s, there was a very strong filter of what would be appropriate for public shelving. Diminution opens another bookmark with a triangle, the Greek symbol for the letter D, or delta, used to identify books in the collection. This little volume was printed in 1845 and could easily fit in your pocket. It's called The History and Philosophy of Courtesanism as connected with morals and legislation by an ex-alderman. And it has an opening line which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. 
The following pages are commended to the candid perusal of clergymen, philanthropists, legislators, magistrates, and all persons who are willing to look upon society as it is and take the readiest means of making it better. And then what follows is tale after tale after tale of courtesans. <laughs> it's so racy and it's, it's so steamy right now. I'm just really uh, and of course bothered. It's, it's a 19th century approach, so to us it's incredibly innocent and, and naive. Today it might seem silly to quarantine certain books and materials just because they seem a bit scandalous especially since each text offers little revelations about race, gender, sexuality, and all their various intersections. They're not just oddities. They are, in fact, the results of human expression or the description of human behavior and are as legitimate as the ones that describe the majority culture. In fact, you can't have one without the other. And the fact that they're blended within my collections means that we take this quite seriously. We're talking about the fabric of a diverse culture in the 20th century. And sometimes that diverse culture isn't just stories about cleavage and black nylons. I'm Lauren Ober. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Emily Berman, Lauren Ober, and Elizabeth Weinstein, along with reporters John Hines and Matthew Schwartz. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, or heck, if you want to hear it again, head to our website, metroconnection.org, and click This Week on Metro Connection, or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when, just in time for elections, we'll reach into the ballot box. We'll ask what drives long-shot candidates to throw their hat in the ring. We'll look at why so many D.C. residents choose to vote in their home states. And we'll find out when Maryland first turned blue. Politically speaking, that is. Tens of thousands of Marylanders have been members of the Democratic Party over the last two centuries. And that weaves its way into public attitudes in different eras. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.